0: Greetings, in Jesus' name. Where in the Bible do we find that fellow with the red suit and the pitchfork? I was asked that about those words here recently, and I said he's not there that way. He doesn't come to us that way. He comes to us like he did to Adam and Eve. He's polished. He's nice. He promises uh, great things, things we want. He is attractive and he is engaging. And he is likable. He doesn't come to us in a red suit with, with uh, horns, with a forked tail and a pitchfork and smelling like smoke. But death and destruction are not far behind him. Whoever takes his bait loses massively and sometimes permanently. Anyone who takes his bait always loses. In the last brothers' meeting, I have been given the responsibility of uh, alerting the brothers of this movement that that's been going around, called the um, NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation, and its related teachings and what for inroads they were having among the Anabaptist people. And in in that harmony, of course, we know there's a deacon and his family and his children that all left, at least from the influence of that movement. I don't don't know where everything, everything lands. So we know we know that happened, and we know that the leadership of a local charitable organization, Blessings of Hope, has, I would say, fully embraced at least aspects of this movement. And, of course, there's a counseling center that, um, I, I don't know if you call it the overcomers or whatever, that is actually strongly influenced by it as well. And that became especially clear when they talk about the Lap brothers when this past fall, this group of people was invited to Washington, D.C. for a, well, it was a Trump rally thinly veiled as a religious meeting, and they participated publicly on stage on this uh, as one rally. So I was asked to share the information about this rally and to alert what was going on here with uh this with this one of these main instigators is Lance Wanu or Walnu I guess you call him. And um I sent all that information and I got a response from Tim Sizet. And the response from Tim Sizet is what then generated uh, impetus for the message he said, such confusion would to god the church could provide clear enough teaching and take their stand on the right issues in such a way that these people talking about them down there these people would understand that they are neither Anabaptists nor standing up for the kingdom of god Would to God the church would provide clear enough teaching. If the church would provide clear enough teaching, these people would understand they're not Anabaptists. They're not standing up for the kingdom of God. They are standing up for something else. They have adopted something else. I taught some about the kingdom in the past. And it's up to you to decide whether or not it was clear teaching, <laughs> and it's been taught um, frank Frank Reed does quite a bit. Uh, John D. Martin has done quite a bit of the teaching on the kingdom. They both specialize on that. but i I would like to teach this morning, and i to be clear in my teaching, I will need to divide this topic into two messages. As I pondered and organized the information, I realized that I could not give both expose the erroneous teaching of, the, of what is being taught and teach what, what is correct and biblical and what we really believe. So I divided up and it's going to be an erroneous part and it still got pretty big. So we'll see how we, how we come along here. So the title this morning is actually erroneous kingdom teaching. You can have kingdom teaching that is erroneous. And then the next I will focus, like I said, on what we believe the teaching. And as I studied this movement and I have had little direct contact with this movement or the people in it. But as I began to study it, I began to realize something I had not realized. I have been down this road before. Like I said, I don't have much interaction with this movement, but I am actually quite familiar with their underlying fundamental beliefs because I have been down this road before. In fact, I have lost some friends and some fellow church members to the same belief system under a different banner. And so have some of you. And, and, and uh, as we go along, we'll, I'll describe where, where it is. It, it's really so. Uh, if you remember 25 years ago, there was a movement in the charity, well, it was, it was a movement, but it came into the charity churches and we lost three, one from Harmony and two from Charity to this movement called Christian Reconstructionism. That was a strong, that was a movement that was going strong in the 80s and in the 90s and it came into our churches and three influential young men with their wives, publicly, officially announced their departure from the accepted normal Anabaptist teaching to join the Reformed Calvinist Reconstructionist belief system. And I could name them, but I don't think I I need to. But I knew them personally. All of them were my co-workers. One of them was my boss. So I was close to them. And they embraced a belief system that I re- still re- that I rejected and still do today. And uh, I have a letter that was formulated by them, and it was signed. And uh, that letter that they included, it, they were asked to be removed from all responsibility at Charity and Harmony as they were going out, and they had six points. And the last three were the ones that really apply pretty close to what we're going to speak about this morning, So I'm going to just designate the last three. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount substantiates the Old Testament law. It does not inaugurate a new higher standard. It just substantiates what the Old Testament law did. Next, it is the Christian's responsibility to exercise dominion on the earth. And the last one, and to promote God-fearing men to take roles in civil government. And so you might ask, well, why bring my distant past into this critique of the NAR and the Seven Mountain theology? Because the two movements are, look so different. And yes, they are very different in some aspects. The Reformed Reconstructionists are intellectuals. They are law-oriented. They're orthodox. They're anti-charismatic. They are cessationalists. uh, I'm probably not saying that wrong. They they believe the the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. Theonomy is their word. They believe that God's law needs to be enacted and actualized in society. The NAR, in contrast, has their roots and practice fully in the charismatic camp. Theirs is a signs and wonders movement. Theirs is a prayer and revival, supernatural move of God belief system. They have modern-day apostles and prophets. Through the supernatural power of the Christian they intend to infiltrate society and bring about the kingdom. So, what is common between these two movements? The one is fully non charismatic, fully law based. The other is charismatic, dream, prophecy based, miracle based. It's, pro- it's described that the similarity is described in one word that describes it best is their belief in in dominion theology or dominionism. If we understand what is meant by dominion theology, we will understand how these two are alike. And, and how this belief contrasts from the Anabaptist perspective. After this, these two messages, I want you to be able to sniff out these errant beliefs. And I would like you to be able to embrace and defend the true kingdom of God. You can do some of your own study as well as you wish. Dominionism is a belief system, it's, it's a framework in which to understand the scripture, uh, understand the Bible, understand the purpose of the Christian. Understand why we're here for. And it takes certain scriptures and it builds a belief system on, on some scriptures. Uh, got questions is, um, and if you got questions, you can go to got questions. And it describes Christian dominionism uh, this way. It's a this system this way. Christian dominionism is a term coined by social scientists. And popularized by journals to refer to a subset of American Christianity that is conservative, politically active, and believes that Christians should and eventually will take control of the government. This term is sometimes used as a catch-all by bloggers to describe any politically active Christian, but just get this point, not every conservative Politically minded Christian is a dominionist. I want to make that clear. Just because you see uh, there's Christians and they're politically minded does not mean they're dominionist. But there is a subset of them that are. Christian dominionists believe that God desires Christians to rise to power through the civil system so that his word then might govern the nation. The belief that America is a Christian nation is sometimes called soft dominionism. The idea that God wants only Christian to hold government office and run the country according to biblical biblical law is called hard dominionism. And dominionism takes its beliefs or based. Uh, it gets its name actually on from Genesis chapter one, verse 28, where that was given to our first parents to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over everything that moveth upon the earth. And this verse is taken by Christian dominionists as a divine mandate to claim dominion over the earth physically, spiritually, and politically. And there's more to their belief system than just that. In fact, we'll talk more about it later. Now, Wiki, if you want to think of a Wikipedia, how reliable they are, well, you get some things from them. And they actually, this is, they actually talk about Christian dominionism. And I brought this out because of how they, how they class the different branches of dominionism together. They say prominent adherents of these ideologies are Calvinist Christian Reconstructionism, Roman Catholic Integralism, Charismatic and Pentecostal Kingdom Now Theology, and New Apostolic Reformation. So there you have four different groups that are put under Dominionism. And that's why the Reconstructionists and New Apostolic Reformation are in the same camp with a different way of expressing it. So when I say we've been down this road before, well, we've been down this road before. But instead of being Calvinist and Reformed-based, it's Pentecostal and Charismatic-based. The same fundamental impulse under a different banner. Now, the Reconstructionist movement had major impacts on society and government. In fact, it has affected us. You know you're affected by the Reconstructionist movement. It had affected society. Um, I don't actually know for sure how the homeschool movement would look today. It wouldn't have been for Christian Reconstructionists because they had an, a um, disproportionate um, influence On the Christian homeschool movement, and we know that influences us today. In fact, uh, they uh, they they sought this movement very strongly as they sought independent from direct oversight from the secular government. And it also explains, to some degree, why the homeschool movement is very is often fundamentalist in nature, and it is. Somewhat militant in style that has its inroads from this kind of belief system. Now, according to Molly Worthen, she says the Christian Reconstructionist movement declined in the late 1990s and was declared dead in a 2008 Church History Journal article. I can't say it quite that strongly. In the, in the, in the mid-90s, think they had, there was a lot of momentum in that movement, and it looked like they were, politically, they were actually moving forward. And then came the Clinton years that put, and, and it wasn't just four years, it was eight years. It put a stranglehold on their whole idea of the government getting control of it. And ever since that, they've been losing and losing the culture war. Their idea was to win the culture war, and they have lost it on every front. So things have not been going well, and they have to acknowledge defeat in the culture war in the U.S. and in the West in general. But to say that the movement is dead, I personally heard statements like this, personally. The entire world is going to come under Christian rule. It may have setbacks. It may take 30,000 years, but it will happen. I heard that described to me personally. So is it dead? Well, it has lost a lot of confidence and momentum. But contrast that with the NER. The NER, by all uh, all appearances, is in a wave of momentum. Momentum. It's upbeat, it's victorious-sounding. It has charismatic leaders that are able to motivate the faithful and gain new adherents. It's like a Ponzi scheme. It's it's on the front end of its popularity, and it's growing. It has enthusiasm. It has energy and just for just for um, effects sake my wife and I listened to one one of their proponents In fact it was Lance we listened to a part of the message last night just about 10 minutes and listen engaging interesting inspiring speaker no doubt absolutely will inspire you so it's totally wrong but he will do that Some commentators call it wildly popular. One academic estimated that 66 million in America have come into significant contact with NAR teaching in the United States. And it's promoted by a lot of different Trinity Broadcasting Network, Daystar Television, God TV, Charisma Magazine, International House of Prayer, which is called IHOP, and Youth with a Mission, which is y- YWAM. And um, then it has a bunch of leaders. I don't, I don't think I have to go through all that. And this same person, as far as a commentator, uh, NAR is credited for the recent spread of Christianity throughout Asia, Africa, and Latin America. It is one of the fastest growing groups within the church and will soon overtake the category of Protestants. In contrast to the Protestants, this is Pentecostal. Pentecostalism is the fastest growing movement in the world and especially in the South. And, uh, and they, that, that would be largely this kind of teaching. <clears throat> it is hoped from within, from within the movement to be a movement as radical as the Protestant Reformation itself. So, Reconstructionism has declined, but NAR has taken its place as an even stronger movement. So that's why I'm going to leave the Christian Reconstructionists behind and speak on the movement that's coming, that's here. The NAR and its outgrowth, the Seven Mountains mandate. And this is going to be, I'm going to miss very, very much of the system, but we'll, we'll look at First, we're going to look at their wrong structure and then we'll look at their look at their seven mountain dominionism. First is their structure. The new apostolic reformation teaches that God's intended form of church govern- governance is apostles and prophets holding the leadership over evangelists and pastors and teachers. But since this hasn't been this hasn't been true for the vast majority of church history. So, according to the NAR, God has begun restoring prophets and apostles in the last 30 or 40 years. And only now, as the church is properly guided by the appropriate spiritual leaders, can it fulfill its commission. So you get the idea that this is a new A new work of God, it's a new thing, and it's, of course, uh, to them, uh, this new thing is the right thing, the good thing. So, the church can now, finally, fulfill its commission. And the commission is seen as more than spiritual, and remember this. It includes cultural and political control. I want you to remember this because we're going to get back to that. It's not that the church is, has a commission that's spiritual. It's cultural and political. The apostles are seen as the highest of all spiritual leaders being specially empowered by God. And then true maturity and true unity only comes if, as, the, as those who submit to the leadership of the apostles. And the prophets are almost as important as the apostles. The prophets have been empowered to receive new revelation from God. They get these dreams. They have, this is the, the hyper charismatic aspect of this movement. They get dreams. They get revelation. The prophets' new revelation is critical to overcoming the world and the success of the church depends on the apostles following through on the information the prophets provide most of their prophecies are extremely vague and they're easy to reinterpret so if something doesn't come through it doesn't sink them and the NAR is willing to modify them since there is no standard of of infallibility for themselves So the NAR is intentionally non-denominational, preferring to be seen as a move of God that transcends churches and backgrounds. That is why it operates as a loose network while denying that it is an organized movement. Hierarchical, like church structures that actually have structure in them, is actually seen or dismissed as being under the control of the empire or a religious spirit. Growth in the New Apostolic Reformation is primarily driven through small groups and church planting, sometimes completely independent of a parent congregation. In other words, someone can go and start a church, doesn't even need a church to start a church. It's not under authority that way. This movement is not centrally controlled and many of its followers will not self-identify as part of the movement. They will not even realize they may be part of the NAR. But all the same, thousands of churches and millions of believers adhere to the teachings of the new apostolic reformation. Some of them, maybe many of them not even aware of that. So there's their structure. And I'd like to, for you to open your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to just go through a little Bible study about apostles and prophets and about revelation and about the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 20 talking about the Jews and the Gentiles coming together. And he tells, Paul tells them, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So you have Jesus. No foundation can no man lay but Jesus Christ. That's what. And alongside of Jesus Christ, lined up to him, you have the apostles and prophets. And that's talking about The original prophets, the original apostles—that's that's that's the foundation. That's where the church is built on, and then it talks, and you're built, you're built upon it. In whom all the building fitly framed together grows in the holy temple of the Lord. Then go over to uh, chapter three and verse five. which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Here you have a new revelation that is given to the early church. And that revelation was that the, uh, that the Jews and the Gentiles were coming to one body. Here is one of the functions of those apostles and prophets. Just think with me. There was no New Testament. There was no Scripture. You could not get up as a Christian and get up in the morning and read your New Testament. So how would you know what God's will was? In a completely new entity, in a completely new era, in a completely new uh, dispensation. The apostles were given the express charge by their verbal word, to give to the church what was God's will now. New Revelation was part of that. That's how they knew the word of God. You couldn't get up, you couldn't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Galatians, John, 1 John, nothing. You couldn't, there was nothing there. All they had was, well, let's, let's turn to, let's see what they had. Turn to First Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 13, Paul talking to them, writing to them actually here, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe." So, Paul is clear here that when we spoke to you, we were not giving you words of men. We were giving you words of God. He did not have a New Testament to preach. He didn't need to. As an apostle, like the other apostles, they were inspired by God supernaturally to proclaim God's word. And their word, in essence, was scripture to the church and they were charged by god to do this and even in act six when uh, the apostles said we cannot leave the word of god and prayer to serve tables the word of god there what for word of god did they have what well, they had the old testament to prove to the jews that jesus was the messiah but the word of god included the new revelation Word of God was their word, not the New Testament. But even even in First Thessalonians, we see a transition beginning to take place. Because why? Because he said, "We spoke to you the word of God." Now he's writing to them the word of God. <laughs> you see a transition. There's another transition in um, in First Corinthians. You can turn to First Corinthians chapter eleven. We're going somewhere with this little Bible study here. In verse 2, Apostle Paul talking to the Corinthians, he says now, uh, writing to them, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. They have received Paul's Prior teaching, because he had been there. And for the most part, they were keeping it. Okay? They were adhering to it. But now here's a specific ordinance he wants them to keep. And he goes on teaching of headship and covering. But you know, in this verse, you can see that they had prior verbal instruction, and now they have written instruction. And both of them are the word of God. And there's a transition taking place here, right before our eyes. And I say, Aren't you glad? Do you know what Peter said verbally to his people? Or James? Or John? Or Paul? Do you know what they said verbally? No. We have not one word verbal. Well, we have uh, not verbal we not heard them. Everything we know about them is written down. So the verbal word of God has been transferred to the written word of God. And we see the transition here where it was fully verbal. And now we have verbal and written. And oh, Second Thessalonians, I'm going to read one verse here. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word, verbal, or by our epistle, written. You should actually maybe look that up. First Thessalonians 2.15. Here we actually have it just stated that way. We have given you the word, keep it. We have written you the word, keep it. Both. Today, we do not have the verbal word. We have the written word. <clears throat> Keep the instructions, whether we have said it verbally or whether we have written it. Today, we do not have the verbal. We have written it. And one of the last letters to be written was Jude. And you're very familiar with Jude to earnestly contend for the faith. That was and if it's correct to say it this way, once for all delivered to the saints, <laughs> that faith is the whole body of teaching. And it's, it's once for all. It's, it's a full body. And, and if it's correct that Jude was one of the last words, uh, he, he was aware, he was uh, actually his, his epistle is very much parts of it mirror Peter's last letter. In fact, it's very similar that some people think maybe he either had the same source or he copied Peter. But he knew about Peter's letter and Peter had probably been martyred. But the point was, by this time, most of the New Testament had been written. Some of the apostles had died. The point is, in this very brief study, that there was a wholesale shift from Divine revelation given to apostles to now the written word of God. In fact, one of the main criteria used to determine the canon of scripture, which determines which writings, which letters get into the scripture and which do not, was simply, was was this writing from one of Jesus' apostles, his disciples, or one directly connected to him, to them? It was one of the criteria that they used. So, only the original prof- apostles and prophets were authorized to bring in new revelation. There was never again to be any foundation laid, there was not going to be anything else laid on a foundation. The term apostle, if you look at that as someone who's sent on a mission, that's okay to use it today. But the church is to be governed by the written word of God and it's shepherded and guided and guarded by pastors and elders and assisted with deacons and evangelists and teachers round out the roles. But there is no office of apostles such as held by Paul who could speak authoritatively, to the entire church with the backing of infallible inspiration. It's not there. In fact, the New Testament did not concern itself. The, the, uh, the apostles did not appoint, um, they did not appoint, what's the word? Successors. Yeah, they did, appoint, they had, they had, they did not appoint any apostles to succeed them. We did find a lot of attention given to the selection and qualification of elders and bishops and deacons. But to bring back, to bring apostles and prophets back into the to back is some of the heretical structures of the NAR. It fits their hyper charismatic beliefs that God speaks. He reveals, he has revelation, he gives in and dreams, and, and it fits their system. That's why uh, it actually blends in very well. But it does not fit the scripture's teaching. So that's a very brief study on, on the shift from the revelation of God to the written word of God. And it's a settled and a sealed book. If you want to go to Revelation, you will say, anybody who adds to this, I'll add to the curses. Now, I know it might be talking about that one book, but it's really interesting how it comes right at the end of the Bible. <laughs> Revelation, as such, is, is over, as Scripture is over. Okay, what about their beliefs and practices? Here, the movement continues to run off the rails. It's is their view of what the mission of the church is that is wrong and is also their understanding of eschatology or future events that is erroneous. Earlier I had said to remember this. They said the commission of the church is seen as more than spiritual as it includes cultural and political control. See, the NAR is dominionist at its core. And to its core. It gets that mandate from uh, from Genesis. Where it talks about. Taking the earth to do it and have dominion. Then it connects. That verse. Genesis 128 connects it with. Uh, the Lord's model prayer. Where it talks about. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. In earth as it is in heaven. This means that. Every Christian, every true spirit-filled Christian is to have the commission to bring about the kingdom of God, the will of God from heaven, the will of God onto earth, into every sphere of earth. God's will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is not a prayer for Jesus to bring the kingdom. This is an acknowledgement that we are to bring the kingdom. And there'd be some other verses that they would use and I can't go into all of that. Another label that is given to identify what I just described about the Lord's prayer is the kingdom now theology the belief that the kingdom is to be now and 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 we sometimes call ourselves kingdom Christians and one of the next goals the next message and one of my goals will be to differentiate between the kingdom now teaching and kingdom Christian teaching. That will be the, my goal for the next time. Okay. I have mentioned about the seven mountains mandate. The seven mountains mandate is a logical outgrowth of dominionism. It's a way to illustrate in people's minds, the dominionist mind, what they're supposed to do. And I don't know if I can. So probably I don't know how much you are familiar with this. But it's, it's described this way. You have a mountain like that. That's just a mountain, Mount of God. And underneath that mountain, you have seven other mountains. And all these mountains represent... Spheres, all these, uh, this is the mountain of God. All these mountains are to be brought under the mountain of God. Education, an E for that. Religion, that's the church, and, and, and a, all false religion. Family, business, government, including the military. Arts, which includes entertainment. And the media, which is how you um, disseminate information in society. In this belief framework, let me see. And... If, uh, I, I didn't study this, but I, I know I heard this, that in Matthew 28, the Great Commission is given that the Great Commission is to go... I'll, maybe I should look it up. Maybe it'll come back to me. I will, we'll just forget that part. <clears throat> the Seven Mountains Mandate says it is the duty of all Christians to create a worldwide kingdom for the glory of God. And these seven mountains are are kingdoms of cultural influence. And all Christians, generally we would have said, well, religion, we are to build the kingdom of God. And it would be this one area. And they say that is incorrect. That is that is only like building a beachhead. If you go to Normandy, if you want to overtake Germany, and you're over in the English Isles, and, and Germany is occupied by France is occupied by German, and you want to drive the Germans out, you got to establish a beachhead, that's the church. So they got, they landed on Normandy beach, and they got this beachhead, and they say, well, you don't just stay there. No, no, we're going to wear them out by standing on this beach. No, you go now, you go chase them out. And so the church, our, 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 uh, commission is to go and take over all of these areas of society. That is the goal. That is our mandate. That's the Seven Mountains mandate by Lance Walno. So uh, here's some of their beliefs that they have. Because leaders at the top have the power to set agendas and enforce values, that will bring God's kingdom values in that area of cultural influence. So if you have them in government, you're you're in the top of government, you're like a... Joseph, let's say you're like a Joseph. Joseph is one of their heroes, and so is Daniel. If you're like a Joseph, you're so good, you get up to the top, and then you can pretty well run the nation. That's that's what Christians are to do. Um, Effect change from the top. Go to the top. Land says these seven mountains of influence are so powerful that he who occupies the top of these mountains can literally shape the agenda that forms nations. So, there you have it. Now, there are two underlying or foundational beliefs for this to make sense. Maybe it makes sense to you. I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me. One is the view of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And the other is their view of eschatology, which is post-millennialism, which is actually the same as what the Reconstructionists have also. Kingdom Now theology focuses on taking dominion of the earth by way of spiritual battle. And here is one way to describe it. God gave Adam and Eve. Dominion of the earth. He made the whole earth. Then he put Adam there. And he said, you take dominion of the earth. Well, Satan came and deceived them. And when Satan deceived them, dominion went to Satan. That's their belief. So now Satan has dominion of the earth. They have, they had the title deed. Let's think of your title for your car. Who has the title owns the car, right? The rightful owner of the car is the one who owns the t- title well adam had the title but adam inadvertently gave the title to satan now satan has the title except when jesus came through this battle and and this comes into the whole atonement theory thing where did satan what did satan do at the cross well one of the things is he won Satan, Jesus. Jesus, what did he do in the cross? He won Satan on the battlefield. And that, that's a viable, that's a viable. I can go with that. But he won Satan on the battlefield and by by defeating Satan, Jesus got the title back. The title be back from Satan. Now Satan no longer has it. And the idea that when Jesus said he gave Peter the keys to the kingdom, that is the idea that we're going to give the keys back to the church. That was, that was what that is meant. As in the war, winner takes all, so Christ, as victor, took back from the devil the title deed. But the devil deceives us into thinking, still thinking, that we don't have the title deed. So we don't actually do What is our commission or calling to do? We don't actually believe it. We still think Satan has power, but he doesn't in reality. And the only reason we don't have dominion is because we don't take what Christ has won for us. So now it's our job to take back what is rightfully ours. That is to claim our rightful dominion over the earth and subdue it for Christ. This isn't new. In 1990, I was at a some kind of a follow-up discipleship class after Vanita and I were at these tent meetings and we responded and got God saved us. I was at some follow-up discipleship and I heard this exact teaching there, <laughs> 1990, where, it, where someone was talking to someone else and I was just listening in that Christians that a Christian had the title deed, God doesn't have the title deed. God cannot do on earth what he wants to do unless Christians pray for it, unless they bind the devil or overtake the devil or subdue things. If they don't pray, if they don't take charge, if they don't take dominion, even God can't do it because Christians have the title deed and they must do it. That's, that's what I heard that night. He said, uh, and, and I was I, the tip of my tongue, and I could never get a word in edgewise. It's probably better I didn't. I was thinking of the verse, that, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. How does that make sense with Satan owns the world? <laughs> that was, but I, I never got to talk about that, and I didn't, never got his answer on that. So, God won't even do it. He doesn't have the title deed. He gave it to Adam. Adam gave it to the devil. Jesus took it from the devil and gave it back to us. So it's the Christian's call to reinstate dominion over the earth. God will not. He cannot do it without Christians because we have the title deed, not God. Kingdom, now theology. So Christians are to radically oust the devil from the spiritual strongholds through through a variety of Spiritual warfare activities and that's where you have this idea Christians are encouraged to conduct prayer walks through neighborhoods to throw out territorial spirits from cities so the gospel can advance you have prayer rooms that operate around the clock you have fasting and prayer events good sounding stuff but it's for this purpose you do battle with the enemy every Christian has the obligation to participate in warfare prayer to do battle with the enemy, to release judgments against the demonic forces. And through the Seven Mountains mandate, Christians must cast out territorial spirits from the realm of government, the media, the family, the business, the education, the church, and the arts. This activity is the means through which the power and the wealth is redistributed to the church, and the dominion lost at the fall is restored. And proponents of kingdom now theology believe that the capturing of the dominion includes having Christians in political office plus a return of spiritual power and to manifest with signs and miracles and healings. Again, you have Joseph. What did Joseph do? He interpreted dreams, right? And he was elevated. Same thing with Daniel. And... Um, Saul, Saul was, just think of Saul. The, the children of Israel had a problem. The Philistines were a problem. And so the, the, uh, Saul was actually anointed. Now you can't go into the scripture where it says, but he said there's a garrison of the Philistines on this one hill, and you are to take them out. And so he was anointed by God, and he was told where to go. And he got the people together, and they went to this top of the hill. It's a, the garrison is on top of the hill. It's on top of the mountain. Go for it and take care of the enemy. That's the the imagery that is used for today and what we're supposed to do. So it is a vibrant movement, and it has a strong belief in supernatural power. One of their favorite verses is John fourteen twelve. Truly, truly, I say unto you, Whosoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these shall he do, because I am going to the Father. Some actually believe that in the end times, in Revelation, Christians can pray down the plagues on the enemies of God. So they have this whole idea of spiritual warfare, a strong belief system that Pentecostal, charismatic, uh miracles, dreams and revelations, and have a lot of momentum in what they're going to do. That's where they get their momentum from. It's a vibrant movement. Now I'm gonna talk a little bit about uh postmillennialism because that is also a necessary part of this of their system. They believe post millennials in general believe that in Revelation 20 when it talks about the thousand years that that doesn't mean a literal thousand years it means an era of time <clears throat> they see christ post-millennial see christ's second coming as occurring after the millennial and the millennium and the millennium is a period or a golden era or period of prosperity for the church and if you can think of when the uh, I'm not going to go there. Okay, yeah, there. Postmillennialism is the belief that Christ returns sometime. Uh, it could be a long period of time. But it postmillennial belief the view that Christ will return after Christians, not Christ himself, have established a kingdom on this earth. They, those who hold this view believe that the world will become better and better as more and more of it comes under Christian rule. All evidence to the contrary, the entire world will eventually become Christianized, and when that happens, then Christ will return. That's their, that's their belief, and I've heard that many times from the Reconstructionists. According to this view, then believers advance God's kingdom by taking over these seven mountains. And and by prospering, even prospering in business, you will actually channel the world's wealth into the church. There's actually an element of of the, the prosperity, health and wealth gospel is 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 integral in this in this movement as well. Gaining power, especially gaining political power is a sign of God's blessing that is to bring God's kingdom on the earth. The Dominus NAR exchanges the upside-down kingdom reality of heart change for the definition of excess held by earthly kingdoms. In other words, they exchange the upside-down Kingdom reality of heart change for the definition of excess help by earthly kingdoms and they employ earthly methods to achieve it. It is interesting, and this is my own thoughts here as I was thinking all this, is the church has vacillated in the past. And I guess you want to say vacillated. There's always been elements of the church who believe one way and probably elements of the church who believe the other way. Vacillated between the belief that the world is going to get worse and worse until Christ returns or that we are on the verge of a very great revival and the church will overtake the world and will usher in Christ's triumphant reign. You had these two viewpoints in the church and sometimes one is stronger, sometimes the other is stronger. This is. The latter view that we're at a verge of great revival and the church will overtake the world, that happened a lot of times in history. It actually happened in the first Great Awakening. I don't know if you knew that Jonathan Edwards was a post-millennialist. He's a great, the first Great Awakening American. The second Great Awakening by Charles Finney, this was believed, and many times since, especially by charismatic influence revivals. In fact, I heard bits of it in the charity revival. Just think of the song. It's beginning to rain. Hear the voice of the Father. I come, come, ye to the water. Whoever, whoever wants come to the water, I have promised to pour out my spirit upon your sons and your daughters. You're thirsty and dry, lift your hand to the sky. It's beginning to rain. That was a complete charismatic person who wrote that. Now um, I forgot his name. It was—I <laughs> I didn't write it down. But I looked at that song and hear the voice of the Father. Now I know you can ap- apply that in different ways. So you can hear the voice of the Father, but it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's talking about end time revival. And it's easy to believe that the church. You know, to believe that when you're in the midst of the emotion and energy and momentum of a fresh movement, during this time, and it can appear like this movement is going to continue to grow and expand. And by selectively aligning up some verses, it seems like it's almost unbelief to think otherwise, that it's not going to continue to go and finally take over. And since it's a work of God, it can't fail And so the NAR eschatology is a victorious eschatology because they believe the people of God will be endowed with so much power, supernatural power, that through this miraculous power, they will be able to bring God's kingdom to earth in preparation for the end time for Christ's return. And we need to do that by taking dominion over the world's system. According to Seven Mountain Theology, Jesus will only return to a world that mirrors the kingdom of God. And that's classic post-millennial thinking. It's interesting, in the beginning, Jesus' own disciples were of this kingdom now mindset. Just think with me. <laughs> he said, will you now, in Acts chapter 1, will you now restore the kingdom of God to Israel? In other words, they were thinking, we're going to have a kingdom on earth, and Roman rule will be banished. Are you not going to do it? Kingdom now. <laughs> and Christ said, no, no. But it's a very attractive appeal. That isn't what Jesus was about then, and that's not what it's about now. We, are, we belong to a heavenly kingdom that is not of this world, and we seek another home, a city without, that is without foundations. 1 John, just some, just some, uh, just some um, perspective here. 1 John two fifteen to 17, you, you know, familiar with these verses. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away and the lust thereof. Who that does the will of God abideth forever. Kingdom now theology. In contrast to the kingdom now, NAR, Seven Mountains, mandate heresy, there is a true kingdom of God. And that was the one that was embraced by the early church, embraced by many groups of Christians, embraced by the Anabaptists and other faithful groups. The kingdom that is promoted in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's it's a kingdom of called out people that are strangers. They're pilgrims in this world. They are to shine as lights in a dark place. As lights in the darkness and be salt. they're supposed to be influencing. And in spite of persecution and hardship, they are to love sacrificially. They are to extend the kingdom until Christ returns and then triumphs over the kingdoms of this world. And his reign is complete in the new heavens and the new earth. And i just like to read Matthew 24, a portion of it. Uh, you can turn there and this should dispel any notion of the church overwhelming this present age and presenting it to Christ all cleaned up and pure on a silver platter before he comes again. Matthew, uh, Matthew 24 is about... It's, it's a dual prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70... And then also in the times that we are in now, way up to the end of time. So let's, let's start at verse 7, just for brevity's sake. For, for nations shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And listen to this: and many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Endure unto the end. And verse 14: And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. In all the world, for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And then shall the end come. Doesn't look like a victorious, glorious ending for Christ to come back. In fact, Jesus said when he comes back, when he's teaching about prayer in Luke somewhere, talks about when he comes back, will he find faith on the earth, <laughs> will he find faith? It's going to be not that great. It's not going to be glorious. The NAR, it's heretical in its apostles and prophets structure beliefs, and in its belief in dominionism, and its post-millennial view, and it's heretical in many other areas that I haven't even addressed. Like I said, the next time I want to expand what is the true calling of the people of God and how we are to live as true kingdom people. If the church would provide clear teaching, those people would understand that they are neither Anabaptist nor standing up for the kingdom of God. Now, I welcome, very much welcome discussion with me personally, questions or comments or opinions of any kind. I welcome them. As we go through this. Could we kneel for a word of prayer? Lord. As we come before you Lord. We recognize. You are a God that does not change. We are grateful. That we can come before you. And find. You. Stable. Firm, strong, you are our rock, and your scriptures, as they are given to us in your word, are steadfast and sure. Lord, we do acknowledge that we do not understand everything, and we do acknowledge, Lord, that we do not live up to everything we understand. We have not attained like Paul said, he was called to a certain thing, and he had not attained it. We have been called, and we have not attained, Lord. But, Lord, I do pray, even as we seek to attain it, as we seek to be taught and understand and the sacrifice and move forward, we do pray, Lord, that you would keep us from deception, from the enemy, from the devil, from the, the, the false prophets and false teachings. So, Lord, I pray for each one of us here. Make it clear in our mind what is your will and purpose and guide us into your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.